We're jumping into a three-week new se preaching series uh, on the book of Haggai this week. Before we get into that, by show of hands, who has ever heard the book of Haggai read or preached on in church before that they remember? Really? Whoa. Super intense. Okay. Well, I, there are hands. I'm impressed. Um, I'm excited about this. Um, this is not one of those books of the Bible that gets a lot of airtime. You know, even, even with hands up, you know, I think there was four of us, maybe. Um, and yet, as I sat down to read this personally earlier on in the year for myself, uh, I found to my wonder and joy that it speaks a really powerful message for us, the church, today. Build with hope. Uh, it's unlikely, um, in fact, I just demonstrated it, that, that many of us have ever been in a church that has heard this preach. If we had, uh, probably, probably a few of us more than who put their hands up, but we, it was so uh, long ago, so uh, difficult to, to grasp that we've forgotten maybe. Uh, but there's a fair chance that if you have heard this preach in church before, uh, it was attached to a call for giving for a building project. Um, uh, that's just how it seems to have run a lot of the time historically. Uh, the book deals overtly, historically, with uh, the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem uh, after the returned uh, Israelite exiles, the remnant, came back from exile. Uh, and, and so many of the few who have preached, who've looked at this book, have done so in a call to faithfully give towards the work of building God's house, which is taken to be building the church building. Well, breathe a sigh of relief. That's not the message of Haggai. The message of this book is not, please contribute to the building fund. It fundamentally misunderstands this book. To get to the true message of Haggai for us, uh, we do have to take a few extra steps that we normally wouldn't have to take in some other books of the Bible. So, for instance, in, in, in like the book of Ephesians, which we've just finished looking at, um, you, can, you can read that through and, and have almost no historical context. And you can, you can get a pretty good idea of how it speaks to you by just, just reading it, you know. Um, for Haggai, it's a little bit different. We absolutely must understand the historical context, hey Ted, uh, of what's happening in Haggai. Uh, and if you, want, if you want the cheat sheet version of the historical context, um, get, then, then you flick over to Ezra, specifically Ezra chapters 4 to 6, right? Don't do it now, none of that. Um, you can, I mean, put a bookmark by all means. But, um, oh, which reminds me to say, if you would like a Bible to follow along with, uh, there are a few of them on that chair back there on a shelf over there, uh, if you don't have one. Um, but Ezra 4 to 6 gives us this story of what's happening in the time when Haggai, the prophet, comes and speaks to the people. Uh, and here's the summary. In, in 539 BC, remembering the years get lower as you go forward in time in the BCs, Cyrus the Great of Persia, probably the most powerful man in the world at the time, makes an edict com commanding that the Jews be allowed to return from exile return to Jerusalem, rebuild the city. He even commands that the, the building work be paid for from the, the royal treasury. Um, these, uh, and so they do. After, after 70 years in exile, exile that they had been sent to because of God's command and because their Babylonians had been the fulfillment of that command and had taken them away into exile, God's people come back with the promises of God's blessing that they have been given by prophets like Isaiah. However, on arrival, they face uh, significant opposition from the non-Jewish population. 
these inhabitants of the land make a fuss about the fact that the city wall is being rebuilt. Um, they write to the then emperor, the guy who succeeded Cyrus, Artaxerxes, fun name if you're looking for one for your kids, uh, telling him that if this city was completed, it would result in rebellion and it would result in a loss of revenue for the empire. These guys knew how to talk to emperors, didn't they? Or to governments, right? You know, the tax is going to dry up. That's how you get a government to panic. Uh, basically, hey, you've got to stop this or it's going to hit your wallet. Uh, as a result, Artaxerxes, uh, probably the most powerful man again at this point in, in the world at the time, uh, releases an edict decreeing that they stop and go no further. The wall and the temple not be rebuilt. Um, it's hard to overstate the level of pressure that would have put upon them for the emperor of the Persian Empire to say, no, you cannot keep going. It's similar, uh, like kind of the modern equivalent would be if the US president showed up at Gospel Church and said, if you keep meeting on a Sunday, I'm dropping the bomb on you. Like, like it, really, like, you know, the most powerful man in the world goes, no, you may not, and I will destroy it if you do. The, Russian, the, 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 the American president has not shown up and done that, by the way, just, just so everyone's comforted. I don't think he knows about us. Um, but this, this, is, this is the issue. Like, in the face of such huge opposition, they stop. They cease to build. Uh, they rebuild their own houses without a lot of apparent opposition. Uh, but for 15 years, the walls and the temple in particular lie in ruins. And, and that presents this huge problem for the Jews at that point, right? Because the temple isn't just a pretty building uh, in the middle of the city. You might know the temple represents two things. It represents first the presence of God's glory among them. It's where the Israelites look to go, God is with us. He is for us. And, and it also represents the sole way that they have to draw near to him, to deal with their sins through the sacrificial system practiced in the temple. And so, yeah, it, like his glory it is, and so they look at it and remember he's, he's with us and the sacrificial system reminds us he is for us because our sins are, are dealt with here. So, so without these things, you see, although they're back in the land, they are still to an extent separated. It's a, it's a limbo land. They are separated from the blessings of God and the presence of God because his temple lies in ruins. And yet they say, what else can we do? Right? It's understandable that they'd say that, isn't it? It's clearly not the time to build with all of this opposition stopping us, right? Well, skip ahead the, the 14 or 15 years to 520 BC. And God sends two prophets to the people, Zechariah and Haggai. And Haggai in particular, he sent with this message, build, build with hope. God can be trusted. He is your hope, nothing else in this world is. So build with hope. And, and I'm, I'm going to pause there as we go through the historical context and, and, and just say, uh, just, just up front, put us on, why is this book important for us today? Why is this relevant for us today? How could it be relevant for a book about people rebuilding a building in the Middle East two and a half thousand years ago be relevant for us here and now? The answer is we too are called to build. 
uh, in the New Testament, now this, this could rub a few people the wrong way, I'm just letting you know that up front, but we find the biblical meaning of the temple in all of its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ and in his church. Jesus comes and he says to the religious leaders in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And John, giving us like a narrator's note, says he was talking about the temple that is his body. Consistently, Jesus and the authors of the New Testament make this claim about Jesus. He is the new temple because he is where the presence of God is and where the people draw near to God as their sins are dealt with. Yet at the uh, and, and, and probably the key example of that beyond that moment in John 2 is this repeated refrain we get in the New Testament that Christ is the cornerstone. Jesus claims of himself, he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's an Old Testament reference. And he claims it and he claims it about himself. And we ask, a cornerstone of what? Valid question. Lots of things have cornerstones. And the book of 1 Peter gives us this answer. The cornerstone of the new temple, which is now not a building in bricks and mortar, but a kingdom of God, represented by the people of God, his church, throughout the world. Here's what Peter actually says, he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am lying in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We are being built into the house of God today. The church are now where people come to encounter Jesus. Understand, I'm not talking about the building. This is a bar, recently renovated into something similar to a church building. The church, the people of God, are where people come to encounter Jesus today. Indeed, they are the presence of God today because they are indwelt by the Spirit of God, according to the Scriptures. And so in Jesus, through His church, people find the presence of God and they draw near to God as their sins are dealt with through the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. Are you with me? Are we, are we tracking together here? I'm getting a few nods at least. And yet, this temple that we are is not just that we are a temple, but we are being built as a temple, you see. Uh, we, are, we are living stones. He says, um, as we come to him like living stones, we are being built into a spiritual temple. And so, the message of Haggai is a message for us, the church, today. Build with because as much as they were called to the rebuilding of a physical temple then we are called to engage the kingdom building work of carrying the gospel out into our communities of taking the message of the joy that we've found in Jesus and taking it to those around us boldly building relationships sowing seeds speaking out truth of Je about Jesus every day of our lives as first Peter says declaring the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. Don't we have a good building work to take part in church? We have, we have been given, taken from darkness to light, from brokenness to wholeness, from sin 
to righteousness, from sorrows and destruction and condemnation to joy. This is the way that the temple is being built now. As the truth about Jesus goes out into this world and into the lives of his people, into the lives of the lost who will become his people, who come to know him with joy and will become living stones in the temple of God. The temple is built and so Haggai is a book for us. And yet the connection goes a bit deeper than that. It's not just they were called to build, we were called to build, the end, we're done with Haggai. Um, Come with me to this first chapter. Um, God sends Haggai. He sends him to, to two guys. He sends him to Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor. Another great name if you're looking for a child name, Zerubbabel. Um, Zerubbabel, uh, as an interesting aside that we're going to come back to, is an, he's a funny character like, cause, because Zerubbabel is the governor, he says. And yet Zerubbabel is a descendant of David. We find him in the genealogies of Jesus. Uh, and he's the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. And so he's, he's the would-be king of Israel. We'll come back to that a little later on. But the message he brings to them is one that kind of still smarts a little bit in the church today. Thus says the Lord, this is verse 2, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The these people he's talking about there aren't the non-Jewish inhabitants of the land. He's, He's talking about the remnant, the Israelites. The Jews. Basically, they know God has sent them back to build. That's, that's been made pretty clear. They know that there is work to be done, but they're looking around themselves. They're looking at Artaxerxes over there with his finger hovering above the big red button. And, and they're seeing a thousand good reasons not to step up to the work that God has called them to. As a result, we find that their lives are fruitless. God says to them, look at your lives. This is a paraphrase of these verses here, verse 5 to 6. He says, look at your lives. You sow a lot, you don't reap much. You eat, you're not full. Your clothes, they don't warm you. Your money goes into your pocket, your pocket's got a hole in it, it goes out to someone else. Now, those words, the actual words there are directly quoted from, from the book of Deuteronomy. Um, and they're the, they're the curses that God had said would happen to his people if they were faithless to him under the old covenant. But here's the long and short of it, of what God's saying there. God's going to faithfully keep his people from fruitfulness and from contentment apart from the worship of his name. Do we, do we not see here a disturbing reflection of the church in Australia? I do. We, we long to be satisfied, don't we? And, and we long, more than that, a lot of us, we long to see people come in. We long to see revival. We long to see God's people grow. We long for the temple that is God's presence in this world through his church to be built in our day. We're a lot like them. You know, they wanted the temple to be rebuilt. They wanted the work to be done, and yet, and yet, we see a thousand good reasons why it's not me that should do it. We say with our actions, often with our words, um, 
the time isn't right for me to step up to the work. I'm not the right person for this. We go a bit Moses, you know, God, couldn't you send someone else? Which is what Moses said. I know God's given me a task in Christ to do. I know he's called me to take out the good news and that I've been given a glorious message of joy. And I'm called to be a maker of disciples with that message. But if the context was just different, if I lived somewhere else, if people didn't know my history, if people didn't know my old sins, my old foolish ways, my mistakes, my pitifully, pitifully insignificant looking life, if people didn't know my family history around here, isn't that something you get in the country a lot more than we do in the city, right? Like, like if people didn't know the sort of lo line that I'm from and the, the reputation of, ah, oh, yeah, you're a cook, right? Um, uh, you guys aren't. Some of you are. But, uh, <laughs> you know, if, if I was a more compelling speaker, maybe that one smarts a bit for us. We think, you know, God hasn't, I don't have the gifts to do this. If I held a more prominent position in the community, if people looked up to me more, if I was a more gifted evangelist, if the culture wasn't so kind of uh, passive-aggressive towards Christians, um, I find that one in particular, when you really look at it, is a bit laughable. Um, because you, you step back in history, right? And, and we had, for decades, maybe centuries, a culture that was very friendly towards Christianity, and the church sat. <laughs> That's how I would summarise those decades and centuries. We... We sat around waiting for something to happen. Maybe even going, you know, a day of opposition is really more the time for revival. If these things were different, then I would build. Then I'd get down to it. Then I would step up to the work that God has called me to do. And, and, and please, 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 please don't believe the lie that if you don't have some inner sense that God is really calling you to this particular thing, um, then, then, then you're not called in this way. Um, if, if you want to see God's calling of you, you don't need to go further than this. It's, it's incredibly evident. Jesus said in Matthew 28 to all of his disciples, go and make disciples and teach them to do all that I've commanded you. That is, teach them to make disciples. Do you see how that becomes a command for every disciple of Jesus? Do you see how you and I and all of us are called? Called by the very words spoken from the mouth of Jesus? Could it be more explicit? We're called disciple makers. Yet so often we feel the time isn't right. You know what? As, as for them, so for us, right? Uh, God will faithfully keep his people from fruitfulness and from contentment apart from the worship of his name. For us, it's not a matter of food, money, and clothing. Don't hear me wrong here. I'm not saying you're going to get rich if you spread the gospel. Um, it's not working out that way for me. I'm just letting you know. Um, look around at the church today. We want growth. We, we want, you know, that's, that's actually probably what every single corner of the church, uh, as broadly as you want to draw that picture of what the church is, every, every single corner of it, has in common is people want to grow they want to see congregations grow um, but we try everything we can to make that happen except for taking the risk of just trusting just valuing God's glory 
over everything else and speaking gospel truth to our colleagues, to our friends, to our neighbours, to our families, as we've been called. And so the church, the church, by and large, struggles along. You know what's really important? Even, even though God says to them, look at your ways, you're cold, you're hungry, you're poor, and all because you're doing, uh, not doing what I've called you to do, he doesn't say to them, notice this in the passage, there's nowhere there where he says, do it so that you can be warm, well-fed, and rich. Doesn't come up, funnily enough. No, what he says in verse 8 is this. He gives us them the motivation, us the motivation. He says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Why? That I may, be, uh, may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Although he is keeping them from contentment by keeping them from prospering, the answer isn't to build in order to prosper, you see. Likewise for us, the call isn't step out because you're going to be a really impressive, successful church. There's, there's an idol that a lot of people fall for. No, the, the call is to build because we love Him. We love His glory. We want to live in His presence. We want people to know Him because He's so good. So we obey and we go to the work. Church, this might seem a bit confronting uh, for the beginning of a, of a new series. Um, you know, this, this might be like your first time in church and, and, and that might be a bit confronting for you. This is the message that God's given us in His Word. And we know that it speaks to us, if we're honest. I love you guys. I really do. God's put every person in this room on my heart many of you for years. And, and we love Jesus and I love you too much to just hold this back. We need to step up to the work of being a people who are faithfully on mission. But that, that's not the end of the story, just, just, just so, you, so as you know. And that's where this whole Zerubbabel, Joshua, and Haggai thing comes in. That's really important. You see, it's, it's very, very, very significant in this book that what we have is Haggai the prophet bringing a message to Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the rightful king and them together leading the people to faithfulness. And what, what we read at the end of this chapter is that Zerubbabel, Joshua, and Haggai lead the people back to the work of building which God has, has called them to. The prophet, priest and the would-be king lead the people back to worship. And in so doing, they are a picture of a greater one who was to come. Jesus, who would be the great prophet, who would speak God's words to God's people. He would be the great high priest who leads God's people into the presence of God and deals with our sin in a once-for-all perfect way. Jesus, who is the great King, who would lead His people into the kingdom of God. Jesus would come. And we don't follow Zerubbabel here, no matter how much you might name your child. We don't follow Joshua. 
or Haggai now, they were just a shadow of the one who was to come, Jesus. And our prophet, our priest, our king, doesn't just lead us to the work. We have the victory in him. He has dealt with our sin. We have a, we have a, a prophet, priest and king who came down for us who knew that we were broken, who knew that, that far from stepping up to the work of making disciples, we weren't disciples. We weren't saved. We hadn't been delivered from our sin. We were in rebellion against God, and yet he came down, became a man, died on a cross to save us, and has rescued us. We have the victory in him. He is God's holy temple, and he builds that temple in us. He gives us the certain hope that we will be with him for all of eternity and that he will be our joy. And that anything we've had to suffer in this life to get there will seem like, like a, a light momentary affliction. Like one of those small stubbings of your toe, not the big ones. He did it all when he went to the cross for us and died for us. He rescued us and he will rescue all who trust in him. Our prophet, our priest, our king has gone before us. And so we can step into the work of talking, I'm sorry, of taking the gospel out, knowing that these words which Haggai spoke to them are true for us today through Jesus. I am with you, declares the Lord. And we step out knowing that just as he blessed their work, and faithfully oversaw the rebuilding of his house and the glorifying of his name, even against the odds, even against a world that seemed like the wrong time to do it, and an empire that said no, he will also faithfully be with us in the work today. Here in Middleton. He will see his kingdom built in Middleton, on the York Peninsula, as his people faithfully step out, building with trust and hope. So let me, let me chuck you a quick invitation here. Join the work. Let's step out faithfully knowing that our God has gone before us, that he goes with us, and that he is waiting for us to step into it. He's faithful to his glory, and so we can be faithful to his glory. And if you don't know him, you know, if all of this washes over and you say, hey, great, invite me into the task, but, but I'd like... I know, I feel the sense that God is calling me in, but I don't, <laughs> it seems odd that I would now be a maker of disciples. Know that he is calling you first to trust. To trust that he is your saviour who has rescued you through the cross. And only once you're saved from your sin, only once you've come into his kingdom, then will he build you into one who brings others in as well. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I want to pray for us, for the people of God here, that you would lead us to know you and to know you more, that you would lead us with a, a love for you and a love for your glory, that you would lead us to build with hope, that as we go out today, as we go into our lives, we'll be a people who look for the opportunities that you're giving us, the open doors, that we would be giving those chances as well, and that we will be a people who faithfully share your good news. We pray to be a people who are intentional, 
who, who love to get to know people who don't know you because, Lord, we know how much everyone needs you and how much you love those you are calling in. I pray for anyone who hears these words and reads this book who doesn't know you, that, Lord, you would faithfully glorify yourself and give them joy in knowing you. That they would be able to turn, that they would pray, that they would be able to say, Lord, I've, I've walked against you. I've not known you my whole life. Yet now, Lord, because of Jesus and because of nothing else, I want to come in. I want to be one of yours. I want to be saved and be walking that road to you. Lord, we pray that you would faithfully answer that prayer and lead that person into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.